So all morning I've been telling folks I'm really impressed that y'all are here because you know, I was looking at the bulletin on Tuesday and I saw this, this t- call to give. I figured everybody would stay home. <laughs> oh, not that again. Didn't we just do that? Jeez, what does he want now? What I'm saying? I don't know. It's, it's kind of an interesting, you know. Uh, now, now I'm gonna, in all fairness, there, there is some talk about, a little bit about talk about money in this, but I want you to, to relax because that's not really the main point, okay? So take a breath. It's okay. You're going to be all right. <clears throat> and so bear with me a little bit. We're all kind of coughing. And, thank you, bless you. We're all kind of coughing and hacking a little bit. I think it's interesting that they've been telling us this is the, the dust from Africa that's blowing over that's causing all of us trouble and everything. But when I'm over there, I never have this trouble. <laughs> I don't understand it. So, so, so this week we're coming to uh, Paul's third missionary journey. And uh, I'll remind you, last week Jude kind of was, was talking about the end of Paul's second one. He goes to Corinth, and, and, uh, and from there, you know, he returns back to uh, Syrian Antioch and, um, and comes back there. And, and this is where we're going to pick up with this week. So we, we come to this, and it, it starts off with this kind of very uh, short description of, of, of the first part of it, uh, spending some time there in Syrian Antioch. He departed and went from place to place through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, that right there, that one sentence, pretty much covers all of the stuff that, all the places that Paul went in his first missionary journey, which, you know, is like a couple of chapters in, in Acts. But, but now we're going to cover it all in one line. You know, it's, it's almost like Luke is writing this as going, yeah, been there, got the t-shirt, so we're just going to move on. Uh, so he doesn't really spend a lot of time with that, uh, but he does tell us then that while Apollos is in Corinth, where Paul has left, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. And he expected to find some there because if you'll remember on his way home from Corinth, he had sent Prisca and Aquila over to Ephesus to begin start the work there. So, so he comes back to Ephesus and that really is where uh, he's going to spend the majority of the time on this journey. So with that, let's begin with prayer. Come Holy Spirit and be in the midst of us this morning. Open our minds and our hearts and our spirits to what you would share with us and let your breath of life be breathed into us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So thinking about uh, this journey a little bit, we've got this uh, timeline that we've kind of been looking at as we've gone along. Uh, We have here in 52... Uh, Paul coming back to Antioch at the end of the, the third journey, uh, the second journey, and then here he has his third missionary journey. You'll notice it's four years long. It's much longer than his other journeys, uh, and part of that is because he's going to spend two or three years of that just in Ephesus. He's going to be in the city of Ephesus for quite a while. And as you look at a map, you can see that he comes out of uh, Syrian Antioch here, and he comes through all this area, and this is all the area he covered in his first journey right up in here. So he's going to go back, he's going to go back through all those churches, uh, Lystra, Derby, uh, Pisidian, Antioch, all these churches, uh, and, and strengthen them and build them up uh, and be sure that they're still doing well. And then he's going to make his way over here to the city of Ephesus. And as he goes through this region, he's taking an offering. You'll remember before he left on his last journey uh, out of uh, Syrian Antioch, he took an offering for the church in Jerusalem uh, because they knew that uh, had, had prophesied to them that there was going to be a famine in that part of the world. So he had taken an offering and took it down there before he left last time. So now as he begins this journey and he's traveling through all of this area of Asia Minor, 
he is taking up an offering again for the saints in Jerusalem. And he writes to the church in Corinth and talks about it this way. Uh, concerning the collection for the saints, you should follow the direction I gave to the churches of Galatia. On the first day of eve, every week, each of you is to put aside and save whatever extra you earn so that collections need not be taken when I come. And when I arrive, I will send any whom you approve with letters to take your gift to Jerusalem. <clears throat> so basically he's telling them, you know, don't wait till I get there to do this, you know, so that we're not wasting time. Y'all go on and start collecting these funds. And then when I get there, they'll be ready to go. And I will send some of you to Jerusalem uh, with me to share this gift. Now, now part of that is um, compassion uh, because Jerusalem is still having a hard time. And so part of it's uh, just the simple response to that. But the other thing that Paul is doing here is he's building a bridge between these different communities. Uh, you know, in Jerusalem, you have the Jewish Christian community. Up here in Asia Minor, you know, it's mostly Gentiles. And so he, he's, he's building this bridge between those two groups of people. Um, he's reminding the Gentiles, you know, those folks down in Jerusalem, those, the Jewish Christians, those folks are your brothers and sisters in Christ too. And as they are in need... It is right for us in the love of Christ to respond to them. And at the same time, he's bringing this offering to Jerusalem so that the Jewish Christians who are in Jerusalem will look back to their Gentile brothers and sisters and realize, oh, our Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ care for us in the love of Christ and have responded. That's part of why it's so important for, for the offering to come with people from Corinth when they bring that down to Jerusalem. He's building this connection between the different parts of the church. And we still do that. I mean, we still do that to this day within the Christian faith. You know, we take offerings for different places around the world. And uh, one of your Sunday school classes recently took an offering that we sent to uh, Kenya, uh, which they are going to use to train and operate a vacation Bible school in one of the refugee camps in Kenya that otherwise would not have happened. And so, so in doing that, we, we build these bridges between the different parts of the Christian body around the world. And you see that early on here with what Paul is doing as he travels through the part of the world. But, but that, that giving, you know, the, the, the financial end of it's important, but I want you to hear the other part of it is the, the act of love and compassion and the sharing of that is equally as important. So Paul comes to Ephesus uh, over here on the coast, right here. And uh, Ephesus is, is uh, you know, one of the major cities of the Greco-Roman Empire. There's a lot of discussion about how big it was, uh, actually in terms of numbers, but it, but it was a major city, one of the top four or five cities of the Greek and, and Roman Empire. And if you go there today, you can kind of get a sense of, of the importance of it uh, from the ruins that are left behind. Uh, this is one of the main roads or thoroughfares of the city. It kind of makes an angle right here. Uh, and, and this is the temple, I mean the, the library of Ephesus. Uh, and you can get an idea just kind of looking at the ruins, the size of and the, and the grandeur of what must have been here at one point in time. Uh, if you take a left right here and go back here uh, in this direction, you go back to the public square of the city. Uh, and if you continue on to the right, this takes you over to the great theater of Ephesus. And this gives you an idea of the size of the community because this was built basically to hold the community. So you can understand that this, this, is a, this is a large city. It's an important city. It's a major port city. 
Uh, it's a major point of trade and commerce. Uh, there are folks from all over the empire there. Uh, it's also a big tourist destination. And, and so this is an important place that he's going to go. And he's, before he's gone there, you know, remember, at the end of the second journey, he sent Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, uh, there to kind of get started. And as he comes back to Ephesus, he finds that, that they've really not been able to make a lot of headway. Now, I'm going to remind you, in, in the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, uh, Jesus gives this instruction. He tells the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then he says, well, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he's given them this. And, I, and again, you know, as you go through the Acts of the Apostles, really you could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because every time something major is going to happen, the people stop, and they fast, and they pray. And then the Holy Spirit gives them direction and discernment, and the Holy Spirit empowers them to do what God wants them to do. And amazing things happen. But every time, it's through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Now, now remember, when we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, this is, this is not like the force in Star Wars, Right? Right? You know, these are not the drones you're looking for. No, that's not, don't, don't, go, don't go there. Because this, the, you know, the, the power of the Holy Spirit is not something we manipulate for what we want to do. But the power of the Holy Spirit is rather the indwelling of the very life of God. So that we become part of what God is doing. It's the indwelling. I mean, it's the very indwelling of the life of God. So that we become part of what God wants to do. And the story here in Ephesus as he arrives kind of illustrates how important that is. Um, Paul comes and, and again, you know, it's a very small group still after this period of time. And Paul says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said, into what then were you baptized? And they answered, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 of them. This marks the beginning of the growth of the church in Ephesus. Once the Spirit comes upon them, all of a sudden, they begin to do amazing things in the city. And the community begins to grow like crazy as it spreads out. Now, I love this passage partly because it kind of helps us understand what is unique about Christian baptism. And I use this uh, on that Baptism of the Lord Sunday that we hit in, in the second week of January. Uh, but, I, but I also like it because uh, you, know, you have this description of the, of the church which without the indwelling of the Spirit and the life of God in the midst of them is totally ineffective, can't, can't do anything. And then once it opens itself up to receive the life of God, it becomes this powerhouse in Ephesus. And I like that because that, that seems to me like a very good description of the church in America. A very similar kind of place. We are living in an age right now we're living in an age when the Christian church is growing faster than at any point in history. But not in America. 
because it feels like we have decided to do church in America without God. And without the life of God breathed into us through the Holy Spirit, the church is totally ineffective. I mean, without the indwelling of the, of the Holy Spirit, the church is a, it's a great study group or support group or self-help club or social club, but it's not the church. Without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, worship may be great entertainment or education, but it's not worship. Without the Holy Spirit, prayer is uh, really just having a conversation with yourself. Without the Holy Spirit, acts of, of compassion and mercy become simple social work. Without the Holy Spirit, acts of justice become just our particular political agenda. And that sounds to me a lot like where the church is at. It's only when the Spirit indwells us that the church is given power. And, and Paul, when he writes to the churches in Galatia, he, he wants to help them understand, you know, this is, this is how you know uh, if that's happening. So he reminds them, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then I love that little qualifier. There's no law against such things. In case you were wondering, you know, or worried, there's no law against that stuff. But he throws that out there. Now, now the fruit of the Spirit are the marks of the Spirit that, 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 that mark us as disciples. Whenever the Spirit indwells us, who we are and what we do is marked by these qualities. The gifts of the Spirit are the particular abilities that the Spirit gives to us, but the fruits belong to everyone who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And what Paul wants the church to understand is if, if you and what you do in the name of God are not marked by these qualities, then what spirit are you serving? Because you're not serving the Holy Spirit of God. It's a qualifier for us to hold on to. This is what marks it. You see, this passage about call to give really is about this kind of mutual giving that takes place between us and God. And God gives his life to us. God gives his life to us. In the person of Jesus Christ, God offers himself on the cross for our forgiveness. He raises him up from the dead for our salvation. In the breathing into us of the Holy Spirit, God breathes his life into us with every breath we take. And in response, we give ourselves to God. Not, not just our, our spare change or not just our extra time. Uh, we give our lives back to God. And here's the amazing part of that. The, that the more we give our lives back to God, the more space that makes in us for God to pour his life into us. So that we begin this process of, of giving ourselves to God and God pouring more of himself into us. And we give more of ourselves to God and God gives more of himself to us until we are filled with the presence of God. It's what John Wesley would talk about as going on to being perfected in love. 
or sanctification. And Wesley considered it the, the grandest part of all of his theology that he articulated. And the power of that is that the more we give ourselves away to God and the more that God works within us and dwells within us, the more we get to be part of what God's doing. The disciples in Ephesus, as they begin to discover this and as they begin to live into it, they begin to give themselves away more and more. So you have, uh, in the midst of this time that Paul is there, you have Priscilla and Quilla agreeing to go over to Rome to begin being the, uh, starting the church in Rome. You have Epaphras who goes back to Colossae, uh, which is the letter to the Colossians, uh, that letter community goes back there to start the church there you have Timothy and Titus going to Corinth to work with the church there these aren't paid people they're not paid missionaries they're not professionals they're just people saying okay I'm okay God if that's what you want me to do I'll go and they give themselves freely and God does amazing things in the community of Ephesus, as that the church began to go, grow and it began to move and, and they begin to do wondrous kinds of things, uh, the, the word went out through the community and, and people began to come to them to have them pray over them for, for healing and for all kinds of things that before they had turned to the different Roman temples in town. And out of those Roman temples, they had a, a little scrolls with inscriptions for healing and they had books with incantations and, and potions. And as word went through the community, people began to realize that, that, that these Christians, that somehow or another God was doing something powerful in the midst of them, people went to them instead of going to the Roman temples. Uh, many of those that became believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them publicly. When the value of these books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins, several million dollars today. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And Ephesus began to move. Now one of the things that was uh, in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. Uh, these are the ruins as they look today. And, you, and even looking at the ruins, you get an idea of how grand it was. But this is a reconstruction of what it might have looked like in Paul's time. The Temple of Artemis was a major draw. People came from all over Asia Minor and the Middle East and Greece. They came to Ephesus to this temple to worship Artemis. And, and they would take home from there these little small silver statues of her to take in their homes. Because if you were having trouble having children or someone in your family was... Worshiping Artemis uh, and bringing that statue was supposed to increase the fertility of your family. So people came. It was a major industry. But then they discovered that when they went to Paul, when they went to those early Christians, the followers of the way in Ephesus, and asked them to pray for you, they had children. And when before going to the temple of Artemis, nothing happened. And so they begin to turn away from going to the temple and going to the Christian community. And that created a problem. About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way, the early name for the followers of Christ. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, 
This Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trait of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. And he stirred up within the city so much unhappiness about this, he gathered people in the great amphitheater and there began to be a riot. They grabbed some of the Christians out of the early church and brought them in there. Things begin to get rough. They begin to chant, great is Artemis. It looked like it was going to get out of hand. And and for once, uh, one of the few times in the New Testament, uh, the, the officials of the government there in Ephesus waded into it. And the city clerk waded in and said, whoa, stop. Uh, This riot is not lawful. If you have a complaint against these men, the courts are open. You go there and make a complaint. But this needs to end now. And for once they listened. One of the few times that they would listen. But what that moment illustrated was that in religion and in any enterprise, you know, the reality is that if we don't have the life of God in our faith and, and in religion, you know, we follow some other dictate. In this case, the dictate is follow the money. Now, it may be power, it may be prestige, uh, it may be influence, uh, it, it may be, you know, consumer goods, whatever. But we begin to worship whatever is really important to us and not to worship God. As Paul goes through here, and Luke gives us this very short summary of his traveling through Galatian into Ephesus, one of the things that you know, we, we kind of lose in there uh, and don't hear again is that you know, Paul was still facing opposition everywhere he went. All through that journey, <clears throat> people were opposed to him. And, and just like in Ephesus, people were speaking out against the Christian faith. Again, he had people following him from city to city to harass and malign him and the followers of Christ. And, and sometime in this moment while he's in Ephesus and all this is going on, uh, in his writings to the church in Corinth, he wrote those famous words. You know, we're afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of persecution, they knew that the life of God was still moving. And so they could be persecuted, but they could not be overcome because God could not be overcome. They lived in a confidence of that that enabled them to stand up even in those times and those moments and witness to their faith. So Paul goes from Ephesus over to Corinth. Now, now he's written, we have what we call two letters to the church in Corinth. Those are probably actually two compilations of letters that Paul wrote. There's, there's several letters in there. But if you read through 1 Corinthians and into 2 Corinthians, you kind of read this arc where he starts off and he, he's, he's kind of rough on them. Uh, because, you know, this, this Corinthian bunch, they're pretty contentious and argumentative and divisive. And, and so at first when he writes to them, he's, he's pretty harsh. And, and, and then he moves in that, 
beautiful chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians where he talks about agape love, and he encourages them to embrace that. And as they begin to, uh, to get it, and the reports are coming back to Paul that they're beginning to understand what this is about, you see the tone of the letter soften as you move through 2 Corinthians and become more gracious to them. He traveled from Ephesus to Corinth then as kind of a, a final note of that where he would gather with them and, and it would be a time of healing and, 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 and coming together for them. And as he prepares then to take the offering from Corinth and go to Jerusalem, uh, he speaks to them about you know, the, the kinds of things that they're going to face and that he faces. As a captive to the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. Just this reality that I've stepped into this role where, where I'm going to face this kind of opposition. And he tells the church in Corinth, I'm not going to be back this way to see you. And so they argue with him about, you know, why don't you stay here instead of going to Jerusalem? But, but Paul tells them, no, I have to go to Jerusalem. This is, this is where God is calling me. This is where the Spirit's leading me. And you come to this parting scene in Corinth where when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with them all and prayed. There was much weeping among them all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving especially because of what he would say, uh, what he had said, that they would not see him again. Then they brought him to the ship. And you hear that Luke must have been waiting there, right? When we, arrived in, when we arrived in Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us warmly. I mean, you have this wonderful parting scene with this church in Corinth that has been so difficult at times for Paul. And, and, and yet at this point, when he gets ready to leave, they're, they're genuinely grieving that he's not going to come back. And they have this wonderful place where they, they come and they surround him and they kneel down with him and they pray over him. And Paul gave himself fully to what God called him to do. And in that, this amazing work was happening in Corinth and in Ephesus and all through Galatia and Phrygia and Greece. And, and even those communities that he was having to be um, strong with um, understood and, and found love in the midst of that. You know, the, the, the giving is this mutual giving of, of God's life to us and our life back to God. And, and in the midst of that, amazing things happen in our relationships and in our lives and in the world around us because God is moving. And, and this morning, I'm, I want to ask you, what's holding you back? And what fear keeps us from being willing to, to open ourselves up and offer ourselves to God? What prevents us from saying, here I am, and offering ourselves to God, pour your spirit into me? I've been in the church a long time. And it seems to me that, that what I see is that we're, we're trying to do it without God. And you know, the more you try to do without God, the harder it is. And the harder it is, the less effective you are and the more tired you get. And the less effective you are and the more tired you get, the harder you work, which just makes you that much more ineffective and tired. Until we finally just burn out. 
But, but when we let the life of God be breathed into us and we're willing to hand our lives back to God, then amazing things begin to happen within us and around us as we live into the very life of the Spirit of God. What's holding you back from offering yourself up to God? Let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Be in the midst of us. Breathe your life into our hearts and our minds and our spirits. With every breath we take, let us know your life coming to dwell within us. Help us to set aside the fear that, that holds us in bondage and keeps us from giving ourselves fully to you. Fill us with a trust and a confidence that allows us to speak boldly and to live boldly. Come and move in us and through us that we might get to be part of the amazing work that you are doing. Come and indwell us, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.